The Paso County DEC is providing this podcast as a public service in order to let you know more about the issues and ideas which Democrats have identified as being very important for voters and also to provide a forum for Democratic candidates for office. Our podcasts are open to anyone interested in how Pasco Democrats are dealing with the important issues of the day. You can check out our PascoDems.com website and also on Facebook, Pasco Dems, and the views expressed by the guest and host on our podcast are their own. Not the views of the Pasco County Democratic Executive Committee. In the case of today's podcast on guns in America, the views expressed are those of the host and others whose views have been publicly expressed and are readily available on the internet. And I will take careful note to make sure you know how to get to them. We're going to begin today talking about the identities of the American nations. Colin Woodard, in a book called American Nations, argued that there's never been one America, but rather several Americas. Most of them developing from one or another of the rival colonial projects that formed on the eastern and southeastern rims of what we call, call the United States. These regional cultures, or nations if you will, have their own ethnographic, religious, and political characteristics, distinct ideas about the balance between individual liberty and the common good and what the United States should become. They've also profoundly affected the geography of gun violence and gun policy. There is a uh, a detailed analysis is available, and I'm going to go uh, review some of those um, analyses about the nine large regions. First of all, what we call Yankeedom, population roughly 55 million, founded by the Puritans who sought to perfect earthly society through social engineering, individual denial for common good, and the assimilation of outsiders. The common good, ensured by popular government, took precedence over individual liberty, when the two were in conflict. New Netherland, population 18 million. Dutch founded and retains characteristics of 17th century Amsterdam, a global commercial trading culture, materialistic, multicultural, and committed to tolerance and the freedom of inquiry and conscience. Another one, Tidewater, about 12 million. Founded by lesser sons of landed gentry seeking to recreate the semi-feudal manorial society of the English countryside. Conservative with a strong respect for authority and tradition, this culture is rapidly eroding because of its small physical size and the massive federal presence around D.C. and Hampton Roads. Greater Appalachia, population 59 million. Settlers here overwhelmingly from war-ravaged Northern Ireland... Northern England and Scottish lowlands were deeply committed to personal sovereignty and intensely suspicious of external authority. The Midlands, around 37 million, founded by English Quakers who believed in humans' inherent goodness and welcomed people of many nations and creeds. Pluralistic and organized around the middle class, ethnic and ideological purity, never a priority, Government seen as an unwelcome intrusion. The Deep South, 43 million. Established by the English Barbadian slave lords who championed classical republicanism, modeled on slave states of the ancient world, where democracy was a privilege of the few, and subjugation and enslavement the natural lot of the many. El Norte, 33 million. 
borderlands of Spanish-American empire so far from Mexican City and Madrid that it developed its own characteristics. Independent, self-sufficient, adaptable, and work-oriented, often sought to break away from Mexico to become independent buffer state and ex into U.S. instead. Left Coast, population 17.9 million. Founded by New Englanders who came by ship and farmers, prospectors, and fur traders from the lower-level Midwest by wagon. It's a fecund hybrid of Yankee utopianism and Appalachian emphasis on self-expression and exploration. And finally, the Far West, population 28 million. Extreme environment stopped Eastern cultures in their past, so settlement largely controlled by distant corporations or federal government via deployment of railroads, dams, irrigation, and mines exploited as an internal colony with lasting resentments. Now, uh, this person, Colin Woodard, does a project at Salve Regina University's Pell Center for International uh, Relations and Public Policy, which uses this regional framework to analyze all manner of phenomena where regionalism plays a critical role in understanding what's going on in America and how one might go about responding to it. Decades of scholarship show that there were large regional variations in levels of violence and gun violence and that the dominant values in those regions encoded in the norms of the region over many generations likely played a significant role. But nobody had run the data using a meaningful historically based model on U.S. regions and their boundaries. Working with our data partners, Motif, we used data on homicides and suicides from the Centers for Disease Control for the period 2010 to 2020. And we've just released a detailed analysis of what we found. The CDC data are smooth per capita rates, meaning the CDC has averaged counties with their immediate neighbors to protect victims' privacy. The data allows us to reliably depict geographical patterns, but doesn't allow us to say the precise rate of a, of a given county, as expected. The disparities between the regions are stark. Being I was shocked, Mr. Goodard says, at just how wide the differences were and also by some unexpected revelations. The Deep South is the most deadly of the large regions at 15.6 per 100,000 residents followed by Greater Appalachia at 13.5. That's triple and quadruple the rate of New Netherland, the most densely parted of the continent, which has a rate of 3.8, which is comparable to that of Switzerland. Yankeedom is the next safest at 8.6, which is about half that of Deep South, and Left Coast follows closely behind at 9. El Norte, the Midlands, Tidewater, and Far West fall in between. For gun suicides which is the most common method, the pattern is similar. New Netherlands is the safest big region with a rate of just 1.4 deaths per 100,000, which makes it safer in this respect from Canada, Sweden, or Switzerland. Yankeedom and Left Coast are also relatively safe, but Greater Appalachia surges to be the most dangerous, with a rate nearly seven times higher than the Big Apple. The Far West becomes a danger zone, too, with a rate just slightly better than its libertarian-minded Appalachian counterpart. When you look at gun cell homicides alone, the Far West goes from being the second worst of the large reasons for suicides to the third safest for homicides. Let me repeat that. When you look at gun homicides alone, the Far West goes from being the second worst of the large reasons for suicides to the third safest for homicides. 
a disparity not seen anyplace else except to a much lesser degree in Greater Appalachia. New Netherland is once again the safest large region with a gun homicide rate about a third that of the deep deadliest region, the Deep South. We also compared the death rates for all those categories for just white Americans, the only ethno-racial group tracked by the CDC whose numbers were large enough to get accurate results across all regions. For privacy reasons, the agency suppresses county data with low numbers, which wreaks havoc on efforts to calculate rates for less numerous ethno-racial groups. The pattern was essentially the same, though, except for that greater Appalachia became a hotspot for homicides. The data did allow us to do a comparison of white and black rates among people living in the 466 most urbanized U.S. counties, where 55% of all Americans live. In these big city counties, there was a racial divergence in the regional pattern for homicides, with several regions that are among the safest in the analyses we've discussed so far, Yankee Dumb, Left Coast, and the Midlands becoming the most dangerous for African Americans. Big urban counties in these regions have black gun homicide rates that are 23 to 58% greater than the big urban counties in the Deep South, 13 to 35% greater than those in Greater Appalachia, and propelled by a handful of large metro hotspots, California's Bay Area, Chicagoland, Detroit, and Baltimore metro areas. Among this is the closest data comes to endorsing Republican talking points on urban gun violence, although large metros in those same regions have relatively low rates, including Boston, Hartford, Minneapolis, Seattle, and Portland. New Netherland, however, remained the safest region for white and black Americans. The data suppression issue prevented us from calculating the regional rates for just rural counties. But a glance at a map of the CDC's smooth county rates indicates that rural Yankeedom, El Norte, and the Midlands are very safe, even in terms of suicide, while rural areas of greater Appalachia, Tidewater, and especially Deep South are quite dangerous. So, what's behind the stark contrast between the regions? In a classic study done about 25 years ago, a study of the geographic map and violence of the social psychologist Richard Nisbet of the University of Michigan noted the regions initially settled by sober Puritans, Quakers, and Dutch farmer artisans, that is, Yankeedom, the Midlands, and New Netherlands, were organized around a yeoman agriculture economy that rewarded quiet, cooperative citizenship with each individual being capable of uniting for the common good. Much of the South, he wrote, was settled by swashbuckling cavaliers of noble or landed gentry status who took their values from the knightly medieval standards of such manly honor and virtue, by which he meant Tidewater and the Deep South, or by Scots and Scots-Irish borderlanders, the greater Appalachian colonists, who hailed from one of the most lawless parts of Europe and relied on an economy based on herding where one's wealth is tied up in livestock, which are far more vulnerable to theft than grain crops. These southern cultures develop what anthropologists call a culture of honor tradition in which males treasure their honor and believe it can be diminished if an insult, slight or wrong, were ignored. In an honor culture, you have to be vigilant about people impugning your reputation, and part of that is to show that you can't be pushed around, says the psychologist Dov Cohen who conducted a series of experiments with Nisbet demonstrating the persistence of these quick-to-insult characteristics in university students. White male students from the southern regions lashed out in anger at insults and slights 
that from those northern ones ignored or laughed off. Arguments over pocket change or popsicles in these southern cultures can result in people getting killed. But what's at stake isn't the popsicle, it's personal honor. Paul Ingrosian, an economist at Australia's University of New South Wales, has found strong statistical relationships between the presence of Scots-Irish settlers in the 1790 census and contemporary homicide rates, but only in southern areas where the institutional environment was weak, which is the case in almost the entirety of Greater Appalachia. She further noted that in areas where Scots-Irish were dominant settlers of other ethnic regions, Dutch, Fremen, and uh, excuse me, Dutch, French, and German, were also more violent, suggesting that they had accumulated to Appalachian norms. The effect was strongest for white offenders and persisted even when controlling for poverty, inequality, demographics, and education. In these same regions, this aggressive proclivity is coupled with the violent legacy of having been slave societies. Before 1865, enslaved people were kept in check through the threat and application of violence, including whippings, torture, and often gruesome executions. For nearly a century thereafter, similar measures were used by the Ku Klux Klan, off-duty enforcement, and thousands of ordinary white citizens to enforce a racial caste system. The Monroe and Florence work, pro uh, work project today mapped every lynching and deadly race riot in the U.S. between 1848 and 1964 and found that 90% of the incidents occurred in those three regions or El Norte where deep southern angles enforced a caste system on the region's Hispanic majority. In places with a legacy of lynching, which is only now starting to pass out of living memory, University at Albany sociologist Stephen Messner and two colleagues found a significant increase of one type of homicide for the 1986 and 1995 study period, the argument-related killing of blacks by whites that isn't explained by other factors. Those regions, plus Tidewater in the far west, are also those where capital punishment is fully embraced. The states they control account for more than 95% of the 1,595 executions in the United States since 1976. And they've also been most enthusiastically embraced stand-your-ground laws, which waive a person's obligation to try and retreat from a threatening situation before resulting to deadly force. Of the 30 states... That have such laws, only two, New Hampshire and Michigan, are within Yankeedom, and only two others, Pennsylvania and Illinois, are controlled by Yankee Midlands majority. By contrast, every one of the Deep South or Greater Appalachia-dominated states has passed such a law, and almost all the other states with similar laws are in the far west. In rural parts of Yankeedom, like the northwestern foothills of Maine, gun ownership is widespread and hunting with them is a habit and a passion that many parents instill in their children in childhood. But fetishizing guns is not part of that tradition. In upstate New York, there can be a defensive element to having firearms, but the way it's ingrained culturally is as a tool for hunting and other purposes. Uh, says Jacqueline Schildkraut, Executive Director of the Rockefeller Institute of Government's Regional Gun Violence Research Consortium. There are definitely different cultural connotations and purposes for firearms depending on your location in the country. 
If herding and frontier-like environments with weak institutions create more violent societies, why is the far west so safe with regard to gun homicide and so dangerous for gun suicides? Carolyn Pepper, professor of clinical psychology at the University of Wyoming, is one of the foremost experts on the region's suicide problem. She says here, too, the root causes appear to be historical and cultural. Quote, if your economic development is based on boom and bust industries like mineral extraction and mining, people come and go and don't put down ties, she notes. And there's lower religiosity in most of the region, so that there isn't to foster social ties and perhaps provide a moral framework against suicide. Put that together and you have a climate of social isolation coupled with a culture of individualism and stoicism that leads to an inability to ask for help and a stigma against mental health treatment. Another association that can't be dismissed, suicide rates in the region rise with altitude, even when you control other factors for reasons that are unclear. But while this pattern has been found in South Korea and Japan, Pepper notes, it doesn't seem to exist in the Andes, the Himalayas, or the mountains of Australia, so it would appear unlikely to have a physiological explanation. As far as the far west low gun homicide rate, she does not have the data, and she notes that firearms out here are seen as recreation and defense, not for offense. You might wonder how these centuries-old settlement patterns can still be felt so clearly today, given the constant movement of people from one part of the country to another, and the waves of immigrants who did not arrive sharing the cultural mores of any of these regions. The answer is that these are the dominant cultures Newcampers confronted, negotiated with, and with which their descendants grew up in, surrounded by institutions, laws, customs, symbols, and stories, and coding the values of these would-be nations. On top of that, few of the immigrants arriving in the great and transformational late 19th and early 20th century went to the Deep South, Tidewater, or Greater Appalachia, which wound up increasing the differences between the regions on questions of American identity and belonging. And with more recent mi uh, migration from one part of the country to another, social scientists have found that the, the Moors are more likely to share the political attitudes of their destination rather than their point of origin. As they do so, they're furthering what Bill Bishop has called the big sort, whereby people are choosing to live among people who share their views. This also serves to increase the differences between the regions. Gun policies are downstream from culture, so it's not surprising that the regions with the worst gun problems are the least supportive of restricting access to firearms. A 2011 Pew Research Center survey asked Americans what was more important, protecting gun ownership or controlling it. The Yankee states of New England went for gun control by a margin of 61 to 36, while those in the poll's southeast central region, the deep south states of Alabama and Mississippi, and the Appalachian states of Tennessee and Kentucky supported gun rights by exactly the same margin. Far western states backed gun rights by a proportion of 59 to 38. After the Newtown school shooting in 2012, not only Connecticut, but also neighboring New York and nearby New Jersey tightened gun laws. By contrast, after the recent shooting at a Nashville Christian school in Tennessee, lawmakers ejected two of their young black male Democratic colleagues for protesting for tighter gun controls on the chamber floor. And then the state Senate passed a bill to shield gun dealers and manufacturers from lawsuits. 
When you go to New York area criminologists and gun violent experts, uh, people are maybe expected to be told that the more restrictive gun policies in New York City and in New York and New Jersey largely explain why New Netherland is so remarkably safe compared to other U.S. regions, including Yankeedom and Midlands. Instead, they pointed to regional culture. New York City is a very diverse place. We see people from different cultural and religious traditions every moment, and we just know one another, so it's harder for people to foment intergroup hatreds, says Jeffrey Butts, director of the Research and Evaluation Center at the John Day College of Criminal Justice in Manhattan. Policy, he says, has something to do with it, but policy mainly controls the ease to which people can get access to weapons. But after that, you have culture economics, demographics, and everything else that influences what they do with those weapons. And we're going to stop it there today and tomorrow in the ending uh, chapter in our three-part uh, on gun in America. We'll be talking about gun violence and the archive and uh, what's happening in the various places in the U.S. from a statistical point of view. See you then. <laughs>